This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Zach Ringelstein, Democratic nominee for the United States Senate in Maine. Congrats on earning the nomination and thanks for coming on. I'm happy to be here, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Of course. A quick note to our listeners before we get this interview started. We are recording this episode on June 29th. There's a lot of news coming out every day. With that being said, Zach, could you tell us about your background and what pushed you to jump into this race? I grew up the son of a social worker. I grew up in a small town of just a few thousand people. I had 52 kids in my public school graduating class, uh, qualified for free and reduced lunch growing up, but I had an amazing family who uh, raised us in a home filled with love and, and patriotism for our country. As uh, I got older, I, I decided I wanted to be more like my dad than anybody else. I, I wanted to be a, a social servant. And so after graduating from Columbia University, I decided to teach. And I ended up teaching in Phoenix, Arizona, in a Mexican immigrant community. I ended up uh, actually also teaching at an international school in East Africa and Tanzania. I worked for the UN for a little while during college. And all these experiences combined made me feel very frustrated with the standardized testing movement. And I wanted to dig into that a little more. I, we, my wife and I ended up giving a TEDx talk on how the standardized testing movement was destroying public education. And we started connecting our classroom to other classrooms around the world. And what ended up happening is uh, this program got brought online and it blew up. It was in over 5,000 schools. And it was a little bit of a resistance to what the standardized testing movement had become, which was taking away all ability for uh, students to have authentic experiences and to actually engage with the world in an authentic, meaningful way. Long story short is I got very involved in politics during that time. Uh, we did actually the first year anniversary uh, of Sandy Hook with Gabby Giffords. Uh, and uh, on our platform, I, I worked with Senator Mark Warner on uh, immigration lesson plans that were shared throughout the country and world. And then uh, I actually was invited to the White House to work on early education policy and was stunned to find at that table with the Secretary of Education himself and about 15 or 20 other people, I was the only one in that room who had ever worked in a public school. And it was shocking to me that working class people were not represented, were not at the table, were not present, and that basically everyone stood to profit off or gain power from their quote unquote public servant experience. And that is what we are fighting against. And I've just come to believe fundamentally that at the end of the day, it, it, we are controlled by big money. Our policy is completely bought by multinationals and we need to get back to a place where people are represented, where working class people are represented. And so our campaign is taking a whole new approach. We're not taking any money from 
PACs, lobbyists, or corporations because someone has got to do the right thing in Trump's America in what I believe is a crisis moment for our country. And that's why we're, US, we're running for U.S. Senate. It's great to hear that. Now, you are challenging incumbent Angus King, an independent senator who caucuses with the Democrats, but according to 538, votes with Donald Trump almost 50% of the time. What are your thoughts on King and why is it important for you to challenge him this year? Angus King is a, a good guy. I mean, he's he's a, one of those guys who you, you know, you, you walk on the street and you, you know, he has, he, he, he's very easy to recognize here in Maine. I think we need to get rid of this idea that, that all of these people who we've known forever, who have been celebrities uh, in our, in our States and cities just deserve to keep office for as long as they have. And Angus King, unfortunately has gone the way of, of corporate. And what I mean by that is uh, over the course of his tenure as governor and then uh, now as U.S. Senator, he has done things like he denied a, minim a minimum wage increase here in the state. Uh, he uh, has accepted money from just about every multinational you could probably name. Uh, you could uh, list them on, you know, uh, some of the big ones uh, are TD Bank, Lockheed Martin, Goldman Sachs, pharmaceutical companies, uh, Google, Facebook, you, you, know, you name it, his, he has taken money from them. And unfortunately, what's happened since he started taking money from corporations is he started to vote for and with them. He's voted for mass surveillance. He co-sponsored the recent bill to deregulate big banks, which was Trump's second big legislative achievement. He voted against military sexual assault preventions. He voted for most of uh, Trump's cabinet. And I believe he's really complicit in this mess. And he really doesn't take a side on much of anything. He, if you ever listen to him, he plays the middle of the fence. And as our country has become more corporate and as our country has uh, become farther and further right, and I believe under the Trump administration, more authoritarian, being in the middle and not taking a side actually means you are complicit. I believe also it means that you are being dragged further and further. We need we need people who are willing to put their foot down and say, absolutely not. And unfortunately, Angus King isn't able to do that. It's just not in his nature. And so though I respect the man uh, for some of the work that he's done, I don't respect the fact that he's not been able to put his foot down and that he doesn't stand for much at all. There's a lot I want to touch upon there. Your point about Angus King standing in the middle and what that means in a far-right environment reminds me of something my senator, Richard Blumenthal, recently said, which is that Trump should appoint a centrist nominee to the Supreme Court to replace Anthony Kennedy immediately. Blumenthal walked back on that fairly quickly after progressive backlash. Could you tell us your thoughts on the Supreme Court situation? I think what's happening is, is very, 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 very scary. And why it's scary is that in the last couple of weeks, we have seen not only one of the most egregious violations of human rights at our border with the separation of children and the imprisonment of families and children, something that honestly, I think we, we would go to war with other countries for, but we are seeing the takeover of our, our third branch of government, which I think is our most sacred branch of government. I think it's the branch of government that we've had to rely on in a Trump administration that is looking ever more authoritarian. 
And what is frightening about it is that obviously we've seen a lot of five, four decisions that have come at the expense of unions, uh, that have come at the expense of women, that have come at the expense of the LGBTQ community, that have come at, at, at the expense of people of color, that have come mostly at the expense of the working class, of people who are the most vulnerable in this country and are working the hardest in this country. And to know that uh, Justice Kennedy is gone, he's been a swing vote uh, primarily for women's issues and LGBTQ issues, is uh, to think that uh, basically we're going to see Trump appoint somebody who is far right conservative, both socially and economically. And will, you know, Trump obviously likes to appoint people who he believes will be loyal to him. And what's frightening is all the decisions that come forward uh, in the in the in the coming years, whether it's I mean, as far as him deciding he wants to uh, he, he somehow gets the backing and is able to uh, go beyond two term limits. I mean, I think we are living in such a time where we have someone in, in the Oval Office who would like to be a, a dictator and. I think that's frightening. I think all of us as Americans deserve to know what is going to happen. We also need to, so, so I, here, here are a couple of things. First and foremost, we have to be very concerned about Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is obviously something that uh, Kennedy was a little wishy-washy on, but for the most part um, in, in his previous decisions uh, kept in place. And so, uh, we're we're going to be looking at you, Susan Collins. We're going to be looking at you, Angus King. We're going to be figuring out if you are going to put your foot down and say, we're going to wait for this Mueller investigation to close before we even let uh, a Supreme Court nominee come to the floor. And I think that that's what we need to do, because the question is going to be whether or not this is a, a, a legitimate or illegitimate president. Uh, before we let him have such a big say in the future of this country, which I believe is in huge peril. Should you be elected, what could you actually do in the legislative branch to protect civil rights and liberties during the last two years of Donald Trump's first term? We need a growing group of progressives who are taking back our government and who are restoring a sense of justice to our policies. So because I'm not taking any money from PACs, lobbyists, or corporations, I can actually work with Senator Sanders on, for example, a Medicare for All bill. And we then have another senator who will support it. And we can bring light, spotlight, spotlight to these issues. I think we need to really grow the progressive voices, the progressive caucus, the, the folks in Washington who are able to step up for the values of this party. And so, you know, we talk about working class issues like Medicare for all, ending the era of college debt. We talk about social issues like LGBTQ rights. We talk about uh, the end of discrimination and creating federal discrimination laws. We talk about uh, in, in various ways, making sure that we can cement women's reproductive rights. And I think that 
Right now, unfortunately, we have a Democratic Party and a Democratic leadership and a Democratic establishment that is not willing to really step up and actually stand out and do the right things on these issues. They seem to uh, be complicit in the sense that they are kind of allowing the Trump administration to move even further and further. And I think uh, we need to end this era. We need to actually talk about working class issues, talk about civil rights issues, and bring the policies forward that aren't written by the lobbyists who donate to the campaigns, but are written for and by the people. I absolutely agree. And a very important point you made is that Angus King is one of several members of the Democratic caucus who has voted pretty faithfully for Donald Trump's cabinet and judicial nominees. It's clear why getting another Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is so terrifying. Could you explain why lower court nominees and cabinet nominees are also so dangerous to confirm? Look at Kirsten Nielsen. Kirsten Nielsen is the one who enacted the family separation policy. And she's also the one who defended it. Angus King was a deciding vote for her confirmation. And look at what has happened. Uh, look at look at Zinke. Look at Carson and his horrible policies in, in housing and urban development. Uh, look at Betsy DeVos. When I mean, we think about uh, how Susan Collins let her out of committee and then decided to take all the credit when she voted against her, even though that was obviously decided beforehand that she would get the credit because she likes to maintain her quote unquote uh, mo moderate uh, uh, stances. And I think that what, what we're seeing is that the Republicans and the Democrats are coordinating who is getting to vote for whom uh, based on who they think their constituency is. But at the end of the day, we are seeing that big money has complete control. And so, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, the maintenance of our democracy and the preservation of our democracy for years to come, we, we are going to have to undo so much. I mean, we talk about, for example, the, the Muslim ban. OK, let's just let's just dive into that for a second. So we had uh, we had uh, federal judges who blocked the Muslim ban a few times and then it ended up in the Supreme Court's hands, right? The Supreme Court uh, up, upheld the Muslim ban five to four. So not only does the Supreme Court uh, nominee and whoever ends up getting confirmed matter, uh, but all of the judges who uh, made sure that the, that the legal process in this country was executed according to the law and not according to Trump's wishes is what our third branch of government is all about. So we have a very dangerous situation where we have a president who is actually meeting with judges beforehand, which is honestly unheard of. When, when we need to make sure that our third branch of government is independent and is able to actually act in accordance with the law and with the Constitution, not in alignment with the loyalty of the president. I'm glad you mentioned Nielsen because you have perhaps more than any other Senate nominee in the country this election cycle been a leader in the immigration fight. You have made history as the first statewide major party nominee to support abolishing ICE. You were arrested recently at the border. Why does this matter to you? And what does comprehensive immigration reform look like in your eyes? 
It matters to me because it's right. I, I just, I think, I think this is politics. L- listen, is, is more icky than, than I even knew before jumping into this race, because you think that politicians actually have a viewpoint. Politicians for the most part, honestly, just try to, to please people and pander to the moment. And I just always am operating on the level of what is right. And, you, you know, if you, if you look at social media, you'll see that, that this issue is incredibly divisive. The only reason immigration, in my opinion, is divisive is because it's easy to create fear in working class people who are struggling. And I believe that Donald Trump is taking advantage of all of us in that way. And the other, otherization is out of control. Immigration is the backbone of our country. We are a nation of immigrants. I am a descendant of immigrants myself. Most of us are, except for Native Americans. And so I think that at the end of the day, what is right needs to be done. And you know, let's just talk some facts, all right? Immigrants start businesses at twice the rate of, of native-born Americans. So they're important for our economy. Immigrants, by the way, are helping to replace our population, which is a really important for our economy. Immigrants uh, in this country are, are committing crimes at lower rates than the rest of us. And so there's no really good argument for why we shouldn't have immigrants in this country, just from a statistical point of view. But from, from a point of view of just being humane and being a human rights leader, it's really important. Listen, I lived in East Africa. I, I lived in a, in, a, uh, in a town where there was no electricity and where people were living on a dollar a day. And what I know is that people in that community uh, really believe that America was and is a beacon of, of human rights and freedom. And we need to continue to be that. We need to continue to be that beacon uh, in, in order to uh, be the uh, America that, that, that I love, that my brother, by the way, fights for as a naval helicopter pilot. And, and we need to be that free beacon of freedom if, if we want to uh, sustain uh, freedom and democracy a, a, across the world. And then on a very personal level, I, I worked in immigrant communities. I, I, I love these families and these families are good. They want the American dream. And uh, you know, to, to deny people who want the American dream and who want to participate in our economy and our way of life, access it to it is ridiculous. And finally, we're not talking about random people who are coming off their cozy couches to America. We're talking about people who are fleeing war. We're talking about people who are fleeing drought. We're talking about people who are fleeing violence. They don't want to leave their homes. No one wants to leave their homes. They're coming to America because they believe it's a place for refuge. And unfortunately, the conversation has gotten so out of control that we've missed the point here. These are refugees. These are refugees. And America can take in refugees and we can do it in a way that can make all of us proud. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com 
slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. The Democratic Party has really refused to take a strong stand on immigration when they had the chance to force a vote on the DREAM Act in the budget negotiation process. They fell through within a few days. They've never really gone beyond the DREAM Act, which would actually only create a pathway to citizenship for 30% of undocumented Americans, meaning that While perhaps we wouldn't be separating families at the border, we could still be deporting undocumented parents and grandparents within our borders. Could you tell us about how we need to embrace all undocumented Americans? I think the politics of it are are undeniably challenging, but I'm so proud of the Abolish ICE movement. I'm so proud of what's happening. I I think I, I first spoke with you about my stance on Abolish ICE And I didn't even think it was a big deal because, listen, ICE is a terrorist organization that is terrorizing communities and it's authoritarian, it's inhumane. I I, I cannot name one good thing that ICE does for our country other than because it only creates fear and and hurts these communities. And, uh, you know, I I believe is is another black mark on this on this country. Uh, But but for for me, Uh, At the end of the day, it's good to see that these movements are happening because this movement is what ultimately is going to change our democracy and is going to change our our caucus. I mean, big money is controlling it and fear is controlling it currently. But if you get if you get a few more uh, actual immigration advocates who are willing to fight for it, uh, suddenly the conversation changed. If we can get new leadership uh, in the Democratic Party uh, across the board, whether we're talking the House, the Senate, uh, and the DNC, uh, who actually are willing to step up for these things, listen, it would be in our interest. It would be in our best interest because our, the demographics of this country are changing. And I believe this is kind of like the white man's last stand in a way. It's like, it's like the, you, know, at, you know, in the next 15 years, we, we're going to be pr- predominantly uh, made of, of, of people who are uh, black, Latino, and uh, of other descents. And I think that we are going to see in the future that the Democratic Party is either going to decide that it is the party of the Latino community or it isn't. And they're going to have to justify, uh, because the numbers will speak for themselves, uh, they're going to have to justify why, why, why we're not. We are going to have to justify why we are not stepping up now when we know what's about to happen. Uh, the population shifts are going to be undeniable. 
And so that gives me hope. Um, the millennial generation gives me hope in general. The Parkland students give me hope. But let me tell you a little bit about what I believe. I believe, again, we do not have a, a, a real immigration crisis in this country. We need to accept people through the borders. We need to obviously do it in an organized way. Uh, I'm ashamed of actually what Obama did uh, in his administration by deporting so many immigrants. And I'm obviously completely ashamed of what Trump is doing. So I believe we need to obviously make all dreamers citizens. We need to provide undocumented citizens a reasonable and affordable pathway to citizenship. And I think we need to create stronger accountability systems for institutions that are intentionally discriminating against immigrants. And then one other thing that I hear across the board uh, in immigrant communities is not only obviously building a better Medicare for all system, or we don't have that yet, but a better healthcare system. Um, and, and not only that, but, but creating a better public school system so that we can uh, actually school folks and educate folks as opposed to jail them. But we also need fair housing laws because there's a lot of problems for immigrants in, in, in actually being able to live uh, in, a, in a humane way with the housing options that are available. Just last night, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York became the first sitting United States Senator to support abolishing ICE. What really struck me about her statement was the call to separate immigration from criminal justice, something that really captures the racialized dynamic of how the U.S. has basically approached every issue, criminalization and incarceration, whether it be drugs, whether it be poverty, whether it be immigration. How do you hope to redefine the conversation and put true justice into the criminal justice system. I was arrested, as, as many people know, probably who are listening to this podcast, in front of one of Trump's internment camps, is what I call them, the, a detention center in McAllen, Texas. And I was arrested for trying to bring toys and books and supplies to the children there. And as, as you may know, Jordan, I was detained. I was in a municipal jail and then in, shackled and, and brought to a county prison. And one of my observations is that we are just basically jailing the poor and jailing our immigrants. We've decided that instead of solving for our inequality issues, our economic issues, and our immigration issues and our mental health issues, we are literally going to instead spend our money on the for-profit prison industry and jail our people. And it is a sickness. And so what uh, I, I observed was there was a, a lot of correctional officers in my presence. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a bizarre scenario, Jordan, because I'm, I'm there. Uh, they don't give you access to water, by the way. I got two juice boxes the whole day, and I got a little taco and a tiny burger at nighttime. I was there for almost a, a full day. And obviously, it forms this, this kind of sense of dependence. You, know, you go use the bathroom, and when you try and come out, you literally have to knock to get out of the bathroom. There's a, uh, on the men's bathroom, there was a, a, a window. Um, it was, it was, uh, it, it showed me a lot. I had to actually feel what the criminal justice system was really like. Uh, and one of my observations having taught in public schools was again, that there are a lot of correctional officers. And so I looked into the stats and it turns out that the student to teacher ratio is 16 to one. 
do you know, do you know Jordan, what the inmates to correctional officer ratio is? I cannot say I do. It's four to one. I, I just I, literally we are spending. I, I imagine that means more money on the personnel who are taking care of our prisons than we are, I would assume, on uh, the, the, the teachers who are taking care of our students. And if we, if we were to actually reverse that formula, if we were actually to uh, hire more teachers, pay our teachers better, invest in education and in communities and in healthcare and in infrastructure, and in actually creating a system that is fair for all people, then we would not have to jail our own people. And I find that to be the fight that we're in. That is what's going to define us as a country. Can we invest in our people or are we gonna invest in only the wealthy and multinationals and then just jail the people who who, who America and American policymakers to see, uh, have defined as the problem that are hurting just the top one or 2% of this country. When you talk about investment, the first thing we hear from conservatives, centrists, even some liberals is how are we going to pay for it? Which I think somewhat mind blowing because you never hear that question when it comes to military or defense spending, which is most of the federal government's spending. How do you think we need to alter the spending habits of Congress and pay for services that actually tangibly help the people? I think we need to get rid of tax cuts to the ultra-wealthy. We need to look very closely at our military for-profit prison and uh, military-industrial complex spending. And we need to remember that at the end of the day, a real investment would be in public education, in our healthcare system, which by the way, we spend the most per capita on healthcare than any other country in the entire world. And we have the worst results of any developed country. That's because we're giving our, our, our money away to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. And so we don't actually, even when you have insurance, let's be honest, Jordan, we don't even have insurance. I don't know if you, uh, about you, but for me, I, I literally, uh, my, my wife, my wife had to get an ultrasound in her recent pregnancy and we paid a fortune for it, even though we had insurance. I mean, that, Americans don't actually have insurance. We, we were still paying. So it's this unbelievable system and we are all duped. We're all duped because the money is going to uh, for-profit multinationals and it doesn't, even, it doesn't even reach us, the people. And so at the end of the day, we have the money, we have the resources. Having to justify the spending is completely ridiculous. We do need to be obviously a little bit mindful of our deficit, but there are places easily to pull from if we just had rational decision makers in Congress who are willing to actually work for the people and not for the lobbyists who stand to make the money from it, then we would be able to come up with the money in a, in a, in a split second. In the meantime, there are easy ways to pay for these things. For example, we should be having a, a financial transaction tax. Uh, we, we need to raise the estate tax. We need to make sure that billionaires and multinationals are spending uh, more in taxes per dollar than the poor and the working class, which is currently not the situation. 
That brings me to a key part of your platform, promoting global peace and human rights. This really stands out to me because we've seen on both sides of the aisle very partisan hostility towards diplomacy, really just depending on who's president. Notably, in recent months, we've seen Democrats dismiss peace efforts in the Koreas, which, regardless of who is president, is monumental, a huge step forward to fixing a divide created by American intervention in the first place, and something supported by a strong majority of the South Korean people. To me, this begs the question, how do we dismantle the military-industrial complex and mindless partisanship within the Democratic Party? We need to get money out of politics. It's always going to be my answer. I, I believe fundamentally when you have campaigns that are dependent upon Lockheed Martin, like Angus King's is, or upon uh, even uh, one, one, we have a ship industry here in Maine that we're all very proud of. We build the best ships in the world here in Maine. We're all proud of that. Does Ang- should Angus King take money from them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because what it does is it increases the motivation for Angus King and others to do the bidding of these defense contractors and not do the bidding of, of the people. And that's where our sickness lies. We need to get all defense company lobbyists out of Washington. And we need to start again reinvesting in our people and not just in our defense. So over the past decade, Congress has granted the executive unprecedented power to wage war with little to no oversight or accountability. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's now potentially looking at a House leadership role, was the only member of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force or AUMF. And now a bill authored by Senators Bob Corker, a Republican, and Tim Kaine, a Democrat, will probably make matters worse. In the insightful words of U.S. Army Major Danny Sertian, the bill, quote, would essentially rubber stamp the president's authority, for instance, to continue the ongoing shooting wars in at least seven countries where the U.S. is currently dropping bombs or firing off other munitions. What do you think of this legislation, and how would you, as a member of Congress, work to ensure that the executive no longer has a blank check on war? Well, I want to say that I stand with Barbara Lee, and I would vote against its authorization if I had a say, and I would work with her and others to remove this authorization. A lot of what happened after 9-11 was very scary, and I think we need to remember how our emotions played into it at the time. My brother was literally in a building a couple blocks away on 9-11, and it was a very scary day for my family. We didn't hear from him for hours. And I remember the emotions of the moment and the immediate reaction that many of us had, which was, we need to figure out who did this and how to make it right. And that emotional reaction uh, makes sense. At the same time, what it unfortunately did was undo a lot of our constitutional freedoms and liberties. The reason why we in the past have not had such authorizations and why the Patriot Act uh, has removed so many of our liberties is because we responded in fear uh, as, as opposed to responding in a way that would have maintained our freedoms, our liberties, maintained 
our ability to be a beacon of free freedom. And instead, we we unfortunately have been operating and going to wars out of fear, which has led us, unfortunately, uh, down the path that we're on, unfortunately, I believe, uh, right to the Trump administration. And so, you know, where did this all start? Uh, you know, I, I always look back at the, the Bush-Gore election and how, unfortunately, we have been on a very scary road since then. Uh, definitely a, a, a road that has uh, denied climate change. Definitely a road that has invested heavily in the military industrial complex. Definitely a road that has taken away our freedoms, whether it's our First Amendment freedoms or our Fourth Amendment freedoms. And I believe that we need to undo some of those laws that were put in place react in reaction to 9-11 in order to maintain our democracy for generations to come. So I'd like to look into a main specific issue. Your state currently has a very interesting situation regarding its voting system. It's specifically around ranked choice voting. Could you tell us what's going on and what it means? So our U.S. Senate race will be the first race in the history of the country that is chosen by ranked choice. So first U.S. Senate race in the history of the country. And what that means is that instead of voting for one candidate who you like, so, you know, the easiest example being Hillary or Trump, you get to vote in order. You get to rank who you like. And what that does is it actually creates a system where it negates the spoiler effect. It means that more voices are included in the conversation and it actually increases the likelihood that uh, candidates who are doing the right thing and are with the people will succeed. It also creates a more civil dialogue uh, in, in the election process because at the end of the day, I also want Angus King's second choice votes. I want people who, uh, you know, uh, to, to rank me even if it's in third place. And so it creates a, a very different dynamic uh, for uh, uh, the, the electorate. And I believe it's going to open up a huge opportunity for our race to be successful because again, it negates the spoiler effect. We are very thoughtful about the spoiler effect here because Governor LePage, who calls himself Trump before Trump and aligns himself with Trump and, and other people like Joe Arpaio, uh, he was actually voted in uh, with less than 50% of the vote. And a lot of people um, blame the fact that there were three people in that race for it because they kind of got, got even amounts and he ended up winning both elections with less than 50% of the vote. So people can now, because of ranked choice voting, vote for me number one, vote for someone number two and someone number three without having to worry that, oh, well, I don't know. Uh, I feel like maybe this person should win. So instead of thinking about who's going to win or who should win or who's the favorite or electability, they can actually just vote for what they believe in. And I believe that that's going to open up a huge pathway for us to uh, win this race and be, become the first Democrat for a long time to, to take a U.S. Senate seat in Maine. So we are recording during Pride Month, though the episode will be released afterwards. What will you do as a United States Senator to support the LGBTQ community? So uh, I, I had the privilege of uh, going to Portland Pride. Uh, if anyone in the world wants a good uh, Pride 
parade to go to come to Portland Pride. It really brings out the, so many people in our city. We had a blast. Uh, my whole family was on the back of a truck and we were, we had music and we were dancing and I had a pride parade, uh, pride flag around my neck. Um, you know, I, I stand uh, in, in solidarity with the LGBTQ community. Uh, I have worked with a number of groups throughout the state to make sure that people know that people have the right to love who they want and, and be who they are without question or judgment. And I think that uh, because of what's happening with Justice Kennedy, it actually puts a lot of uh, LGBTQ rights um, at odds. And I'm, and I'm frightened, I'm terrified. And so I believe that, uh, you know, that even with the marriage decision a few years ago, uh, we, we are, we know, we, I mean, I know I hear from the transgender community all the time that there are government agencies that are denying access to healthcare, uh, et cetera. Uh, we need to establish stricter consequences for discrimination in the workplace. And I believe we need to create a, a federal law that guarantees equality and outlaws all forms of discrimination. Agreed. Now, lastly, where can folks find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? So definitely follow our page. Go to at uh, Ringelstein ME, which is our Twitter handle. Uh, you can find Zach Ringelstein, Z-A-K Ringelstein at, um, on, on Facebook. We have a huge social media following and presence and we like to blast out what we call truth messages all day long, all the time. And so please do that. Our, our website is ringelsteinformain.com. And I think it's really important to note that we are not taking any money from corporations, PACs, or lobbyists. And so we rely on small contributions. Literally, if you can give $10 a month or $20 a month or just 100 bucks to our campaign, that goes a long way for us because we are running a grassroots campaign that really is about the soul of Maine, which is really about the people of Maine, that has nothing to do with big money. And in order to win this U.S. Senate campaign, we need to engage everybody and we need to really find find the... Uh, amplification that it's going to be uh, that's going to be necessary in order to reach the people who are who who believe in this and are so upset about the direction of our country and so um, that that's the best way and, and 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 we're just really excited to engage with every single person who is stepping up to the plate in, in this very very scary time for our democracy. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Jordan, it's my pleasure. Thank you for all you're doing. Uh, you, you are you are a treasure. Uh, what you're doing uh, on millennial politics is a treasure, and 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 I hope that you can continue to lead uh, with your heart and with with your values because we need you in this America. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.